I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. What you're hearing right now is the extraordinary sound of a starling murmuration. From the south coast to West Wales to the Scottish borders, these special displays mesmerise people across the country. Early evening, just before dusk, is the best time to see thousands of birds swooping and diving in unison, a real winter treat. Scientists think that starlings perform murmurations for many reasons. Grouping together offers safety in numbers, as predators find it hard to target individual birds in a flock of thousands. They also gather to keep warm at night, and, we think, to exchange information, such as good feeding areas. It's such a unique thing to see, but sadly it's something that could be disappearing from our view. According to the RSPB, the starling population has fallen by more than 80% in recent years, meaning they've gone from being one of the commonest garden birds to being on the red list of UK birds most at risk. So with habitat shrinking around the UK, there's lots we should be doing at home, especially during the winter, to help our wildlife thrive. Like making a wildflower lawn, for example. Lots of our wildlife is very mobile. It can move about. Gardens can sometimes provide that space and that refuge. Coming up, we'll also be looking at the wildlife that's living in RHS gardens. It just adds a richness to the garden, just thinking of the things that live there and how the things inhabit those spaces as well. It's really fascinating for me. Some of our favourite creatures out there... One of those things that is often a wonderful fight is finding adult butterflies as well as some other more controversial ones. An awful lot of people don't like them because of those molehills that appear on the pristine lawn. And then that becomes a problem. I'm Fiona Davison, and this is Gardening with the RHS. First, we're going to start with a lovely feature that's appearing in February's edition of the RHS Members magazine, The Garden. And editor Chris Young is here to chat about it with me. Nice to have you with me, Chris. You've picked out an article by Kate Bradbury, all about wildlife in RHS gardens, for us to hear about today. Now, why did you want us to feature that in particular? 
Because wildlife is really, really important for people and for gardeners. And I think uh, when we were talking to Kate, I really wanted to understand what the RHS was doing for wildlife and also what wildlife was going on in RHS gardens. We think of the gardens as places of plant collections or as science or indeed, Fiona, as libraries and resources and collections. But actually, there's a whole nother world going on, a world that we share every day, every minute, and that's wildlife. So it was really important to uncover that from the RHS gardens point of view. And as well as the article, you also spoke to her for the podcast. And, and did you learn anything new? I mean, it's very hard to imagine you needing to learn anything new, Chris, but did you learn anything? I, well, well, I think what I learned was just a reinforcement and, and the passion of RHS gardeners loving wildlife. That was genuine. You know, Kate was talking to different staff across the four gardens. There is no them and us in terms of the wildlife. You know, these gardeners are sharing their outdoor space in RHS gardens with wildlife and the range of wildlife. I mean, to think of otters down in Devon sounds fabulous, doesn't it? Them romping around in RHS gardens. I I certainly learned the range of wildlife in our gardens is much broader than I thought. So let's hear what Kate had to say when Chris caught up with her. When you think of RHS gardens, you know, you go and see these beautiful spaces, these well manicured spaces. And I know that there are wild areas and, and there's lots of being done for biodiversity at the moment. But I think sort of traditionally, you know, you, you sort of think of going to see a formal garden and mm-hmm. then actually, you know, as soon as the door closes, you, you've got otters romping on the lawns. I mean, that's just marvellous, isn't it? It really is. And I think that's a really interesting fact, actually, Kate, that when we're making content and writing about the different gardens for the magazine, we're always trying to talk about their floral diversity and making sure that they do look and feel different and each site has its own identity. And it's not something I'd really thought about with wildlife, but you're saying the wildlife really does reflect the site that it's living in. I mean, exactly. I mean, you know, look at Harlow Car with its brook running through it and all the wonderful species of wildlife that you associate with damp habitats. Like, I mean, they've got dippers and amphibians and and lots of you know riparian species and then obviously you know in Essex you've got the drier habitats and and then down in Rosemore you've just got amazing things associated with sort of open woodland and and countryside it's glorious. You've managed to speak to quite a few people across the gardens for the article which is great what was the most interesting story you learned from doing the interviews? I think my favourite story was when I spoke to Helen Bostock at RHS Wisley and, and, you know, she's worked at Wisley for for so many years, you know, used to sort of live in the village and cycle to work and and she just told me this lovely story of one day she was just cycling along the back lane that sort of runs behind Wisley and there was a sort of commotion and this sort of mouse (laughs) (laughs) ran out between the wheels of her bike um, shortly followed by a weasel and she just stopped she just stopped what she was doing and just watched this story unfold which obviously didn't end well for the mouse um, it just adds a richness to the garden just thinking of the things that live there and, and how the things inhabit those spaces as well is it's really fascinating for me was there one consistent message or piece of advice or or observation maybe that you came across from when you were talking to all the different gardeners I think the one sort of thing that comes across, which is something that as a wildlife gardener I know anyway, is that all gardens are home to wildlife. Even those that are quite highly manicured, even those with, with lots of sort of hard paving areas, not completely paved, obviously, but, you know, they can still, you know, if you've got a selection of trees, if you've got a selection of shrubs and flowering plants, you can provide homes and, and food for a pretty good range of wildlife. And... 
the wildlife wants to live, the plants want to live, and it, by simply just growing plants and having these gardens, and then once the wildlife is here, then actually looking after it and taking the time to put up nest boxes um, and dormice boxes, if you're lucky to have dormice coming in, then you can grow on what's already coming in. You can make that wildlife thrive even more. And it's wonderful. And, and the other thing that was so charming about researching this piece as well was, was how there's so much enthusiasm, there's so much joy that comes from witnessing, caring for, providing for the wildlife in our gardens. It, you know, it is really empowering, really, that so much good is being done and, and that there's so much potential for us to work and to create more habitats for wildlife. When uh, we asked you to write this article, it was not only really because of the wonderful wildlife that's at the gardens and also because of your passion that's really clear to hear, but also because as a nation, we seem to have noticed our wildlife through the various restrictions and COVID challenges. Yeah. Do you think that people were more in tune with nature in 2020? I think so. I think that first lockdown when everything shut down and we were all stuck at home, a bit sort of bamboozled, really. Nobody really knew what was going on or how to behave. I think we're all a bit more used to it now. But the first lockdown coincided with spring bird song. It was the noisiest part of the year was, for, yeah. for birds. And suddenly with the absence of traffic and noise from the street, I mean, I, you know, I live two blocks from the high street and everything was just so silent. And, you know, you open the windows and, and your house is flooded with the callers of robins and great tits and... For lots of people who get up in the morning, they commute to work, they go and sit in an office all day, you know, they sit in a car, they sit in an office, they sit in a car again, they come home and sit on the sofa. <laughs> this was just just a revelation for them, really. And, you know, on my Twitter feed as well, people just saying, oh my goodness me, you know, there's so much wildlife. These birds are so noisy. And I was like, yeah, they do this every year. And the other thing that has been absolutely brilliant has been the phenomenon of the lockdown pond. So many people have been tweeting me pictures of the ponds that they've dug. I mean, I could count, I mean, there must have been about 100. So, you know, lots and lots of ponds have been dug over lockdown and this year, which is absolutely brilliant because ponds provide so much habitat for amphibians, obviously, but also for insects, you know, and bats, you know, mm. midges and mosquitoes are bat food and they obviously breed in ponds. There's been so much appreciation and love for wildlife in 2020 which has made me really hopeful for what we can do going forward, really. You can read more from Kate in February's edition of The Garden magazine. Like Kate, people have been writing about wildlife in gardens for a very long time, and particularly in gardening books for children. And the thing you notice when you look back is how much they refer to what they call common or garden animals, that we now think of as really rare. We all know about red squirrels, but also newts, turtle doves, dragonflies, stag beetles were things children would expect to see in their garden. And now it's a big event, which I think is quite sad. So gardeners have always had firm favourites when it comes to animals. The cheeky robin and the inquisitive squirrel get notable mentions, but there's so much more to see if you know where to look. Thankfully for us, our principal entomologist, Andy Salisbury, is here to help. Well, there's a whole range of winter wildlife I like to see, but one of those things that is often a wonderful fight is finding adult butterflies in outbuildings uh, such as a shed. Some butterflies do overwinter as adults, and it's some of the colourful ones such as the peacock or the small tortoiseshell, or even if you're really lucky, the red admiral that you might find in an outbuilding where they overwinter as adults. 
does come as a surprise to people sometimes. One, either they find a butterfly flying around their living room, which has been woken up by the central heating, or when they go into their shed over the winter and they suddenly find this in a little corner, it can be sort of tens of these butterflies, tens of peacocks or small tortoiseshells in a corner, just sitting there doing nothing. It can come as a surprise. But it is actually reasonably common. It's how a few species overwinter, and it's how in spring warm day in March or February you can actually see these butterflies becoming active and they get a head start on the season but of course many other different types of butterfly and moth overwinter as either small caterpillars or as uh, uh, pupae so that the whites the many of the blues the skippers and the copper butterflies all overwinter as either caterpillars or pupae and it's just a handful of species such as the brimstone the small tortoiseshell and the peacock overwinter as adults Butterflies are sort of good indicator species. They are the sort of bright and the colourful you will see in your garden. But if you have good numbers of butterflies, you may have good numbers of other insects in your garden as well. And a good range of insects, both the predators, the sort of predatory insects, predatory beetles, other pollinators, so, so bees, other flies and the moths, etc. It's all a sign of a good functioning ecosystem and a good balance in a garden. And of course, a good balance elsewhere in the wider countryside. So we need this wildlife for a good, healthy, balanced ecosystem. But when it comes to these butterflies over winter, they sometimes do get woken up. They go into a sort of torpor-like state. They don't actually hibernate as such, but they do go into a state of almost stasis where they just sit there. They can get woken up. Sometimes you find them indoors having been woken up by central heating. When that happens, try and carefully box them up and find somewhere dry and sheltered out of doors, as I say, such as an outbuilding, such as a shed, where you can release them and they can continue the overwintering process. If you don't do that, they'll use up all their energy reserves and they won't make it through to the spring. Getting out there and gardening and just having plants in your garden, avoiding the use of pesticides, avoiding being too tidy, accepting a bit of damage. You've got to remember a lot of insects, such as the butterflies and moths, do have caterpillars which feed on plants. So tolerating few nibbled leaves can help the wildlife in your garden and help that general balance. You've also got to remember that you know, the caterpillars are fed upon by other insects too. One story I like to tell here is white butterflies, people who grow cabbages really don't like them because the caterpillars feed on brassicas and can destroy them. But they'll also feed on nasturtiums. And one year I was watching some large white caterpillars on my nasturtiums and I thought I'd leave them. I prefer the butterflies. Nasturtiums are nice and healthy. I'll just leave them and then see whether I can get any butterflies. But in the course of about three hours, I watched some social wasps come in, land on the plant, search, find a caterpillar, bite the head off, and then fly off with the dead caterpillar to feed their grubs in their nest. And over three hours, they took every single one of my large white caterpillars off that nasturtium. So sort of really the highest point, you have a nice balanced garden, you'll get the predators and you'll get the things that eat your plants. But accepting a little bit of damage and accepting some of those caterpillars can be good for the overall balance of your garden. All insects do, of course, overwinter and they will overwinter as eggs, larvae, pupae, nymphs or adults but there are a few things that can be active. You might come across winter active bumblebees and there's a couple of species now which can have active nests throughout the winter 
And so it is important to have some flowering plants out there, such as hellebores and mahonia, which can help feed these um, overwintering bumblebees. And also, as we come out of winter, even those which don't have overwintering nests, you get the queens, these large bumblebees you may see in February and March, flying around and starting up their nests. Other insects that are often noticed in winter are things called winter gnats, and these are, are small flies. People often mistake them for biting flies and they get a bit worried about them, but they are small flies that often hang around in large groups, typically under a tree, and any day that's warm enough, about above about five degrees, they will be flying around. And these, not really swarms, but they're sort of more mating aggregations, can be seen under trees. So there are insects out there that, that are active over winter. Salisbury. Recently, I've become fascinated with the trend of ungardening, a term describing how people across the country have been giving their gardens back to nature. Gone are the pesticides and the concrete, and in are the bug-friendly log piles and wildflower lawns for butterflies. But it's not just as simple as giving up doing any gardening at all, as you could well end up with just a tangled mess of brambles. Jenny Steele is an author who's been a wildlife gardening expert for more than 30 years. I spoke to her to find out the do's and don'ts of wildflower gardening. Nature was just very, very much a part of my young life. And my father was a fisherman, a very keen fisherman, so I spent lots and lots of time sitting on riverbanks, waiting for him to catch something. And the result of that was that I simply just watched all the wildlife around me and became really quite, I mean, I'd say more than interested. I was almost obsessed, I think, and decided that it was something I wanted to be interested in and to be a part of for the rest of my life. Without a doubt, the very best way to make a wildflower meadow in a garden, whether it's big or small, is to start with bare soil and to sow a mixture of grasses and wildflowers that will definitely grow in your type of soil. But also, sometimes it's good to actually look at meadow areas in your particular area of the UK and to notice that perhaps you have lots of a particular species growing, that gives you an indication that that's likely to grow in your garden. For instance, I've seen a garden that's absolutely full of meadow cranesbill. And in fact, my garden here, meadow cranesbill, does very well. But I've got a friend who has a meadow and she can't really get it established in her meadow. So looking at what's happening naturally in your area could be quite useful when it comes to choosing the plants that you want to put in. One of the, the major things that people want from a wildflower meadow is to have lots of butterflies. Butterflies of particular species, the browns in, in particular, they breed on our native wild grasses, different species on different grasses, but by and large, that is a, a sort of a basic fact. The other thing about getting a good grass mixture is that it will be, if it's specifically for meadows, it will be a mixture of fine-leaved grasses. So things like the fescues and poa and all those lovely Latin names that grasses have. Those are the grasses that our native wildflowers are adapted to live amongst. 
most gardens now have ryegrass lawns. And ryegrass is a tough grass. It's brilliant for lawns, but it's not very good for wildflowers to grow in. So you really need our lovely, fine-leaved native grasses. And apart from anything, they're very beautiful and they give you a lovely, proper meadow effect with your wildflowers. I make little things that I call mini meadows in ryegrass as best I can. And this has been a bit experimental. And I found that, for instance, knapweed is a tough enough plant to grow in ryegrass. So I've got little other little areas which had ryegrass where I've got plenty of knapweed growing. I've got just areas of lawn in other parts of the garden where I can see, if I use my botanical eye, I can see the leaves of things like self-heal or clover, some of those little low-growing grasses that you often get in lawns. If I see those, I stop mowing and I leave those little areas to grow and flower and attract a variety of invertebrates of all sorts. And then when they've gone over, I mow them again. They go back to lawn. And those little areas are actually extremely useful and it's probably something that most people can do in their gardens in fact even though they've got lawns that they mow if they see different sorts of leaves amongst the grass it's worth just leaving a little bit for a a couple of weeks to see what comes up and what flowers and it may well be something that has germinated from your seed bank the natural seed down in the soil from the past I think our gardens more and more are providing refuges for wildlife that's losing its habitat in the countryside. And that's quite an important issue. Even people in towns that I've spoken to say to me that they've seen a a marbled white in their garden, which is a beautiful meadow butterfly or, or that kind of thing. Lots of our wildlife is very mobile. It can move about. Gardens can sometimes provide that space and that refuge. I think the other thing is a wildlife garden, not just a meadow, but a wildlife garden, I think is actually good for your soul. I've now spent more than a whole year, in effect, in lockdown. For that whole year, my garden has more than sustained me, sustained my mental health. I think a garden like that gave me, in some ways, a reason to get up in the morning. Jenny Steele, and I've been doing my little bit by having a pile of logs at the back of my garden gently rotting away and being a lovely habitat for all kinds of creepy crawlies. Now, we all know worms are good for our soil, but ensuring you have a good stock of these wigglers also helps feed garden wildlife in winter. So cue the humble mole. Here's mole expert Derek Crawley. Just like children know that if you cut a worm in two, both ends wriggle. And it's always said that at least one end will survive. Well, both ends survive for quite some time. And what the mole actually does, by just taking a bite out the back of the neck without splitting it in two, that worm then hasn't got the ability to actually dig it back into the soil again because it's basically disabled. 
and therefore the rest of the body stays alive for a day or two, which allows the mole to then go back and have that additional food. And it's a little bit like having a larder. It's like you going down to the shops and buying enough food for the week. The moles will actually do the same, collect their worm stash into one place, and then on other days when there isn't sufficient food to have, they can go back to that larder and can have a few worms to keep them going. It's important that a mole eats about a third of its body weight a day. And if it doesn't eat for two days, unfortunately it starves. So sometimes it's really useful to have this excess food that you can just store away for that day when there isn't any. And there have been up to about 200 of me found in one chamber on one of the times that uh, some tunnels were dug out. Worms obviously do an awful lot of good for the soil with the mixing that they do, and therefore the mole is, is quite often considered to be a pest within a garden. But it also eats an awful lot of the macroinvertebrates that are actually doing damage to the plant's roots, the beetles, the centipedes, the millipedes. So it's really quite friendly towards the garden. Having said that, an awful lot of people don't like them because of those mole hills that appear on the pristine lawn. And then that becomes a problem because not only does that actually look unsightly, but it also will then damage your mower as you drive over onto the, into the soil, etc. So I can see that some people don't appreciate them. However, it might be that you've actually got moles and you just don't know it. Now, the reason that this is, is that moles only produce mole hills when they need to produce a new tunnel. If they don't need to produce a new tunnel, you won't see a mole hill. So it's unless you've actually gone out into the garden and jumped up and down and crushed a tunnel, you might never know. There's an awful lot of methods out there that are supposed to put moles off from being in your garden. And I have to say that most of them won't work. People have put in milk bottles that have the air blowing over the top of them to make a sound that resonates through the holes. Well, if the mole gets upset with that, they'll just simply close that particular tunnel and build another one. If you want to go down and put holly leaves into the tunnels, mothballs, all sorts of things. And if the mole doesn't like it, it just simply seals up that tunnel and digs around it. I know this for a fact when I've actually set live traps for moles. I've had them actually, again, completely fill my live traps with soil and then dig around them. And on one occasion, I even filled up my trap with soil all the way through and then dug all the way through just to be annoying so there's nothing worse than picking up your trap to find out the mole has been there but's gone i think the other thing that gardeners need to be aware of is because these moles have these extensive tunnels that quite often go unnoticed then other animals will actually use them and quite often we at the mammal society get questions of What's created this sudden hole that's appeared in my garden? What animal is coming out of it? And quite often it's the mice and the voles, and unfortunately sometimes rats, that are actually using these tunnels as ways of negotiating across the short grass. And that again just shows that you've had moles all these years, but you never knew it. People need to appreciate moles because... There's an awful lot that goes on underground that we don't appreciate and we don't see. They have an important part to play in the ecosystem of the soil, 
if you've got moles, it shows that you've got good soil, you've got good nutrients, you've got good macroinvertebrates, and therefore you're going to have good nutrients in that soil. If you haven't got those things, then your soil quality is going to be poor, and we'll all be the poorer for it, for what we see grow above. So they are this hidden thing. They are very good for the soil. And when you do see a new mole hill, you ought to rejoice and say, yes, that's good. It shows that the mole's actually there and therefore the habitat is actually correct for good soil fertility. That was Derek Crawley from the Mammal Society. That's all for today. For more on the show, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast or check out our show notes. So until next time, it's goodbye from me, Fiona Davison. I'm off to wrap up and head out into the garden and see what I can spot. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.